want to welcome you to Central this morning where we seek transformation of our lives and our community and the whole world through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you experience that Lord of life here among us this morning. Last week we started a study of the book of Jonah and we saw this reluctant prophet running from God and yet the Lord chased him down. He used a storm to call him back, a little bit like a lifeboat, to rescue him out of his rebellion and his trial. The Lord does that, you know. He chases down those he loves. He chases down all of his children, and he uses all kinds of challenges to grab hold of our hearts with his grace. Are you running from God this morning? The good news is that he caught Jonah, and he can catch you and me too. What happened when he caught Jonah? Let's pray and ask the Spirit to help us hear and follow Jesus this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would send your Spirit to open our eyes and our ears to Jesus. May we follow him as we see him in all of his glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. Hear God's word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Have you ever heard the phrase, severe mercy? Ever heard that phrase before, severe mercy? It comes from a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote to one of his friends. Missy and Emma and I had an opportunity to visit C.S. Lewis's home, the Kilns, in Oxford this summer, and it was quite an experience for us, an emotional experience, because Lewis has meant so much to Missy and me in our Christian walk. Well, as I was there and thinking about this sermon, it took me to a a friend, a one-time student of Lewis. His name is Sheldon Van Auken. He had studied under Lewis in Oxford. He and his wife, and they attended Oxford as committed atheists, and yet when they graduated and left, they both had come to trust Jesus as their Lord and their Savior through their studies and through being friends with, with Jack Lewis. In fact, they became dear friends, and when Van Auken's returned back to America, not too long after, Sheldon Van Auken lost his dear bride to illness, and it was a deeply painful experience. 
And it caused him to write more letters and even more letters to his friend back and forth, his mentor, Lewis. And in one of those letters that Lewis wrote back, he used that phrase, severe mercy, to describe what God was doing in his dear friend's life, even, even through the pain that he was experiencing. And Van Auken later wrote a book about his life and, and his love with his wife and his coming to faith in Christ. It's titled, A Severe mercy, describing that time of pain, and yet Jesus met him in that moment. That's what a severe mercy is, you know. It's some work of God that seems incredibly hard. Maybe even it seems unbearably difficult and hard, but when you look back upon it, it was a key vehicle for God's gracious and redeeming work in your life. Sometimes you can't see it until you look back upon it. Have you ever faced a severe mercy in your life? That's where Jonah was at this moment. He had been thrown overboard and this this giant fish swallowed him up in a redemptive work of God and that mercy changed him. It didn't make him into a perfect prophet. It didn't make him into a perfect disciple. We'll see that shortly. But that severe mercy shaped Jonah. It called him back to the Lord, opened the eyes of his heart to the love of God for sinners for all kinds of sinners, including sinners like Jonah himself. And so often it's through that kind of pain, through those severe mercies that the Lord teaches us the deepest lessons in our lives. There's a Scottish pastor and theologian in the 17th century named Samuel Rutherford. And he often wrote letters to people within his own congregation. And in one of these letters to a struggling member, he wrote this. The high king of heaven keeps his finest wines in the cellar of affliction. The high king of heaven keeps his finest wines in the cellar of affliction. By that he means that the Lord's deepest mercy, his deepest grace is so often revealed and even experienced in the middle of trials and affliction and even pain. I want you to listen to me carefully now. Some of you may feel like you've messed up God's plan for your life. That you've, his blessings in your life have been forfeit because of the mess you made. But the book of Jonah is about God being in charge. God is in charge and God loves sinners like Jonah and like you and like me. And so often it's precisely in those places of our messes where God's mercy shines the brightest. What I want us to think about from Jonah chapter 2 this morning is what are the characteristics of a severe mercy? What do they look like and what do they teach us in in Jonah's story here? But mirrored in my life and yours, what does a severe mercy look like? Well, first, severe mercies often call us to scrape the bottom before we're buoyed back up. So often, severe mercies call us to scrape the bottom before being buoyed back up. One of the reasons I love this book of Jonah is that the literary themes that appear through repeated words, repeated phrases, and and concepts. And one of those is around the concept of deep and down in the depths. We heard it in chapter one last week. God called Jonah to arise, but Jonah went down to Joppa. In verse 8, he went down into the belly of the ship and he kept on falling. In chapter 2, verse 1, he went down into the belly of the fish. Deeper still, he went in verse 2 into Sheol. It's an ancient Hebrew way of describing the realm of the dead. 
Jonah's describing, feeling like he's going down into the grave. And once he gets there, he is afraid God's going to abandon him and leave him there. He kept falling down, 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 verse 3, into the deep he fell. Verse 5, the deep surrounded him and seaweed wrapped all around his head. Verse 6, he fell down to the roots of the mountains. Get the picture, he's gone to the bottom. He's on the seafloor where the, the mountains just begin to rise. Jonah has fallen all the way to the bottom of the sea, it felt like to him. And verse 6, he feared that the bars of death are being closed over him forever. Have you ever felt like that? It doesn't feel great to feel like you're falling down, down, down. The, the blows just keep coming like you've been knocked down by something and then another one and another one and another one. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe it feels like you've been thrown down into, into some pit and you're at the bottom and there's no way for you to climb out. You can't even see how to get out. Yet as Jonah was on the bottom, scraping the bottom of life, the bottom of his mess, that's where he cried out to the Lord. Get verse six. He says, I went down, the bars closed, yet you brought me up from the pit. Verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. That is, I, I was down in the depths, I was down at the bottom, and I remember that I can call out to that place of intimacy, that place of where the temple, where, where God dwells with us. I can come into your intimate presence even from where I am at the bottom right now. It was scraping the bottom that Jonah's experience of God's severe mercy taught him that if he's going to have hope in life, if he's going to be rescued, he couldn't do it himself. He was trapped all the way at the bottom and he couldn't do anything to improve his situation. Sounds a lot like us. In fact, one commentator put it like this. Not until he was all the way down, fully stripped of all of his buoyant self-sufficiency, not until then was deliverance possible for Jonah. Let me put it a different way. Sometimes we have to scrape the bottom before we can ever see the Lord's severe mercy finding us as a mercy, as a good thing, before we can ever be raised up, the Lord finds us when we're at the bottom. Are you there? Have you been there? If you're not there now, you either have been or you're going to be or probably both. The Lord finds us at the bottom I remember when I was going through my divorce all those years ago, I felt like I just kept falling and there wasn't a bottom. It felt like God was just taking all these good things in my life away from me. My wife abandoned me. We lost our house. My job felt like it was in jeopardy. My joy certainly was gone. My future in, in ministry, it was all in doubt. And yet it was at that spot in scraping the bottom that I learned a lesson of a severe mercy. When all those other things have been taken away in my life, what I found that is that what I most needed was something that could never be taken away. That's Jesus himself. I found that at the bottom, when thing, everything else had fallen apart in my life and everything else had been taken away, I learned that Jesus could never be. 
He drew close to me in that moment. And I don't know that I could have ever experienced that reality of Jesus with me at the bottom if it had not been for a severe mercy. Other people have said it this way. It's hard to see that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. The Lord takes us at the bottom and he gives us his mercy. That's where Jonah was, at the bottom. And when he was there, he realized that God was there too. That God was there before him and God met him there. God found him there and God will find you too. It's a severe mercy for God to show us even sometimes through the mess that we've made of our lives, that when we're at the bottom, God shows us he's still there. He was there before you. And he will be there to hear you when you cry out to him. And he can lift you up. Severe mercies sometimes call us to scrape the bottom before we're ever buoyed up in life. Second, severe mercies place us in the powerful hands of God as our redeemer. You remember back from chapter one, the Lord hurled that storm under the sea and the sailors hurled Jonah into the water to make the storm stop, remember? The sailors threw him in. But if you look at chapter two, verse three, as Jonah spoke to the Lord, he said, but you cast me into the deep. Did the sailors do it or did God do it? And later, Jonah says, Lord, these were your waves and your billows that passed over me. He even said in verse 17, I'm in this whole thing because God appointed the fish. He's confessing God is the power behind all of it. God is the merciful, powerful one behind all of these hardships that he's experienced. This is that hard and yet beautiful biblical doctrine that of God's sovereignty that he rules over all of his creatures and all of their actions, as our Westminster Catechism says. And yet he uses secondary causes to bring it about. And here's what that means. God is ultimately in charge of everything that goes on. But he uses other people. He uses other means. He uses other circumstances. He even uses other creatures to ultimately bring about his will. He rules and he overrules. He even overrules the effects of sin to pour blessing into the lives of his children. So are the sailors responsible for Jonah being thrown into the sea? Yes. We say, in a sense, is God responsible for Jonah being thrown into the sea? The word of God says yes. You cast me into the deep, God. That's what Jonah says. I'm here because my God is powerful. In verse nine, it's this beautiful statement of faith from the belly of the fish, from in the grip of that severe mercy in the dark. Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. My God is powerful. He's strong. Now here's why this matters. As Jonah sank down, 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 he grew to be absolutely certain that his life was in God's hands. And if he were going to have hope, it would have to come from the Lord. And further, there's no mess in which he could find himself that God is unable to locate him and find him and rescue him and redeem him. There is no problem that could have come in his life that would take him out of God's powerful hands. He was there in God's grip. 
Same is true for you and for me. There is no circumstance in which you will find yourself where God is unable to find you. There's no circumstance where God will be unable to rescue you or redeem you or pour blessing into your life even though you've made a mess of it. There's nothing that can stop our powerful God's hand. He's sovereign. And it took a severe mercy of being down in the bottom to see a beautiful truth like that, that Jonah was in God's hands. His life was fully in God's hands, and so is yours. Every detail of your life is in God's hands. But he didn't find God only to be the powerful and sovereign one. He was able to recognize that this God is one who's also committed to love him and love his people, fiercely love his people. Look how Jonah found his perspective in verse 4. Then I said, I'm driven from your sight. Meaning, I feel like I've been utterly abandoned by you, God. I'm, I'm out of your view. I'm out of your care. I'm all on my own out here. Yet, I shall again look unto your temple. I'm down here at the bottom, and yet through the middle of my mess, I will look up to you, and I will find you. I'll look up to that place of your intimacy, God, and I will find you there. No matter where I am, I can call out and know that you are there, God. If you've been around church very much, you will remember that the temple was the building where God dwelled with his people. The temple was the touch point of of heaven and earth where God came down, where God came down to dwell with his people. And what he's saying here is we have hope within our mess because God has come down to dwell with us. And I can find that intimacy with God even in the midst of my distress because that's the kind of God he is. He's the kind of God who comes down and meets with his people in all of our trouble. God is powerful and he's loving. He can be found in the middle of our distress. But there's something else that's true about the temple that Jonah probably wasn't thinking about in the moment. But on this side of the cross and the resurrection in the New Testament, we're able to see it more clearly. It's in the temple that you remember where the ark was located. That was that golden box that contained the the words of God's covenant promises that bound him together with his people. And over the top of the ark was a, a golden cover with two gold angels on each end and a mercy seat in between. That seat that pictured the very throne of God on earth. That was in the temple inside the Holy of Holies, that most intimate place of God dwelling with his people. And it was into that place on the Day of Atonement where the high priest would go in each year and sprinkle that mercy seat, that throne of God with a sacrifice, the blood of the lamb. That They would know that all of their sin had been covered that they were forgiven, they would be reconciled to God through the blood of the lamb sacrificed in their place to receive the judgment that they themselves deserved. That was inside that temple of intimacy. And of course, that blood sprinkled on the mercy seat was just a picture. It's a picture to point to a deeper truth, that that presence of God that was formerly held in that Ark of the Covenant burst into this world in the form of God who took on flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We read over and over in the Gospel of John that Jesus is the true and living temple of God. In Jesus, earth and heaven met. In Jesus, God entered into this world. He took on our flesh in this true temple of God dwelling in the midst of his people. Not only did he take on flesh, but this Jesus, this temple in the flesh became the Lamb of God who would take away all our sin. The Lamb of God who would have his blood shed to cleanse us from all of our sin. There's no cleansing without the blood of the Lamb and it's at the cross where God proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that whatever sin my people have committed, however they have run away from me, my love for them is proven in this blood of the Lamb sacrificed for you. Whenever you're in that place of sinking down, down, down and you fear God's abandoned me God doesn't love me he's left me here he's he can't love someone like me I'm too sinful I'm too broken the the mess is too big God can't love someone like me together with Jonah turn your heart toward the temple the true and living temple. Jesus, the Lamb of God who shed his blood for you and there you will find proof. Proof that the answer to your question is no. No, God has not forgotten you. No, God is is not turned away from you, but he's entered into this world. God in his power has come down into your life, entered into your circumstances to rescue and forgive and reconcile and renew. Sometimes it takes a severe mercy for us to remember that we're in the hands of God, the one who's powerful and rules over everything, but also the one who is deeply And in a committed fashion, loving. And he will never leave us. And he will never forsake us. Because this Jesus is the true and living temple who has entered your life for your good. Sometimes it takes a severe mercy to show us that our lives are in the hands of God. His powerful hands and also his loving hands. Finally, Severe mercies set our feet on the path of grace, but it's a process. We might be tempted to believe that through this severe mercy, Jonah's ordeal, that he was fixed. Jonah went down into the, into the bottom and he was spit out back on the, on the shore and he had put all of that sin behind him, all that self-righteousness and that, that pride's all behind him. It's only onward and upward from here, but that's not true. That's not how the story goes. It's not true of my life. It's not true of your life either. Severe mercies set our feet on the path of grace, but growing in that grace, being transformed in that grace is a lifelong process until we see the face of Jesus face to face. Do you notice something that was missing from Jonah's prayer? All of this discussion about the The God who's behind all this, the God who put me in this hard place, the God who can rescue me, the God who meets me here in this this dreadful place. Did you notice something that's missing in that whole psalm? What's missing is that Jonah says nothing, zip, about his own sin. Did you notice that? 
It's completely not there. He doesn't say word one about his self-righteous hatred of those Ninevites. He doesn't say anything about being sorrowful from, for running from the Lord. He doesn't talk at all. He doesn't confess anything about his own rebellion, even rebellion as a prophet running away from God. Not word one. But whose sin was he still focused on? The Ninevites. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. Now that's true. It's an absolutely true statement. But do you recognize that Jonah's heart is still focused on those other people? Those idolatrous Ninevites, those, those people out there, the enemies of Israel, they will never receive that steadfast hope, that steadfast love. Verse 9, but I... They won't have any of your life, but I, but I will do what I'm supposed to do. Except he's forgotten to confess all the things that he didn't do where he was supposed to do. It's interesting. You see in chapters three and chapter four, Jonah goes right back to where he was. His old self-righteousness, his old prideful ways, his own religious nationalism that says, God, your grace is for me, but not for them. Not for those other people, not those enemies out there. It's all for me. Now, that might be discouraging to you, but that's not what it's intended to be. It should bring you incredible hope. Why in the world would that fill me with hope? Because God is patient. God is patient. He didn't give up on Jonah. He was patient with a sinner like Jonah, a prideful, self-righteous sinner like Jonah who wants to think about everybody else's sin and not his own. God was patient with him. God rescued him in this severe mercy. And even if he didn't learn his complete lesson after that one, God wasn't finished with Jonah and he won't be finished with you either. There will be lessons that the Lord calls you to learn over and over and over in your life. And it's all part of this path of grace where the Lord has set your feet. You might fall back into those same sins that, that you hoped you'd left behind. You might find in your heart old attitudes of, and disobedient desires that you thought had been put away in your life. And yet here they are. And when you find them, you are probably, like me, tempted to be discouraged. But don't be. Because our God is patient. And he's not finished with you. Our God is persistent. Our God chases us down. I heard someone after the first service talk about hearing a sermon recently on Psalm 23. Where at the end, the pastor said, surely mercy, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But... That word for follow is not really follow. It's more like chased, chased down. Surely goodness and mercy shall chase me down all the days of my life. And this pastor said, if I had two sheepdogs, I would name them goodness and mercy. Because <laughs> that's what God does for us. He nips at our heels. He chases us down with goodness and mercy even when we've wandered off again like wandering sheep are prone to do over and over and over. Our God is not through with you and he's patient. Sometimes it takes severe mercies to experience God as our patient redeemer. 
I like to think of this truth a little bit like the gospel work in our heart is like the turn of a screw. The gospel truth penetrates our heart, but the more we live and the more we walk with Jesus, it's like the screw gets turned and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts. The more we walk with him, the more we see our sin, the more we experience him patient in his grace, forgiving in his love, committed to us in his, his, his loving faithfulness, and he will never forsake us. It's like the screw of the gospel goes deeper and deeper into our hearts as we see our sin clearly and remember the lamb who was slain on the cross for us who was raised from the dead in victory over it all, ascended to the heaven and now rules over everything and has vowed to return again for you and for me and for all of his people and to set it right once more. There's a promise there that there is nothing that can stop our God from doing his work. As the Apostle Paul put it in Romans, not death or life, Not angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Surely goodness and mercy shall nip at our heels all the days of our life until the Lord brings us safely home. That's our hope. I think it must be C.S. Lewis Day here at Central. I'll tell you one more story about Lewis. On my sabbatical, I had an opportunity to, to re-engage with my favorite of the Narnia series. It's The Horse and His Boy. It's my favorite book in the whole bit of Narnia, Horse and His Boy. If you've not read it, order it today and go read it. If you know the story, it's about Shasta, this, this boy, and Bree, his talking Narnian horse. And Shasta has been put under the charge of these poor, abusive adults to raise him in his life. And eventually, he figures out he has to leave. He has to get out from under their abuse. And so Shasta and Bree begin to run and to escape. And they say their hope is we're going to Narnia and to the north. Again, to get out of all of this abuse and go to where land and life is happy and blessed. And all the way through their journey, it's terrible. There's misfortune after misfortune. There's trial, there's tragedy. There are lions that chase them for a while in the dark. They, at one point, they camp out in, in, or in the, around the fire and these jackals begin to circle them around the fire and threaten to completely destroy them. But they go to sleep and the jackals are gone in the morning. And there's another time when uh, they're being chased uh, on a fast run to try to finally get to the king. And the lion is there. And it seems like there are several lions chasing them over and over. They're going faster and faster. And the lion reaches out and scratches the horse with his vicious claws. And yet finally Bree's able to go fast enough to get out of the way. It was a terrible, awful journey. And then you turn the page to the next chapter. The title of it is The Unwanted Fellow Traveler. Bree and Shasta are near Arkenland. They're near the place where they're trying to go. And it's dark in this meadow. It's not only dark, but there's a fog that's fallen. And they can't see anything. And so Shasta begins to walk through this meadow in the dark and with the 
the fog all around him and he begins to be terrified because he can sense there's another creature somewhere. He can hear this creature breathing and it's a heavy breathing. It's a, a big breathing of a big creature. And he's scared to death because he can't see him. He can't sense him. He just knows that he's there somewhere. And then this creature begins to speak. And it's a lion. It's Aslan, the Christ figure in the story. Aslan begins to speak to Shasta in the dark, in the fog. And this is what he had to say. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus, to go on this journey to start with. I was the lion who drove the jackals away from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horse the new strength and of fear for the last mile that you rode so fast that you would get to where you were going in time. Over and over, the Aslan goes misfortune by misfortune and says, all of this happened at my hand in the dark and in the fog. Aslan assured Shasta, I'm here and I'm active and I guide you and I guard you and it felt like severe mercy for Shasta to be chased into the hands of safety and yet it was Aslan who chased him. Friends, you and I have a powerful God who is a loving God who is active in sending severe mercies into your life and into mine to chase us into the hands of safety. At least for Jonah and for me, maybe it's true for you, sometimes it takes a string of those severe mercies for those truths to begin to burrow deeply into my heart. But the truth is this, they all come from not just powerful hands, but loving hands who has pledged he will never let you go. In the dark and in the fog, the hands of God will hold you safe. Let's pray. Father, we are sometimes overwhelmed with what's happening in our lives. We feel like we've been knocked down and we keep getting blow after blow after blow after blow and we wonder, where are you? Where are you? And so God, what a, a blessed truth it is to know that we can cry out to you in your holy temple. We cry out to the Jesus who took on flesh, who knows what it's like to live in my shoes. And know you're right here with us. And you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. Lord, there are people in this room who feel like they're down at the bottom, they're in the pit. And they need you to open their eyes. They need you to open their ears that they would know you are there. Show them, Lord. Gently care for them. There are others in this room, perhaps, Lord, who have never met you, don't know you, and would love to have news of one who no matter what trouble is going on in my life, there's one who can save me from it. Lord, I pray that you would open up the hearts of all of those and save them. Help them to know that you love them, that you are forgiving and healing and restoring God no matter what mess we've made. Lord, would you reach into their lives, grab hold of them, and give them faith 
to believe and trust that you are good and your mercy endures forever. Lord, every one of us need you. From all of our circumstances, we cry out to you and we know that we can find you because you're here. Teach us and show us and draw close, we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.